With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Space Floor NBA Podcast. My name is Connor Geelan. And I'm Connor Flannery. And this is our 60th official episode. Today we're talking about The Last Dance, episodes 7 and 8. This week, I'm just going to come out and say I, I, I held this opinion from you when you were talking before. These were my two least favorite episodes. No, no, no. Like, like not the individual episode, just this was my least favorite week in general. Okay. Um, not because it wasn't bad. I enjoyed myself. I had a good time. I just thought that it was not as high intensity, high impact, makes me on the edge of my seat. And now I was still on the edge of my seat. This, this, this entire <laughs> thing is fantastic. This entire thing is fantastic. I would just say, I don't know. I, I felt like it didn't grip my attention as well as the first three weeks. Um, that, that's just, I, I'm just going to come out and say it. Still had a good time. Still was the highlight of my weekend because that's the type of person I am. Uh, a basketball show was the highlight of my weekend. What are, what are, your, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think I, I understand where you're coming from with that because I think that this episode, out of any of them so far, talked the least about why people were so enthralled with the man that was Michael Jordan. And it was more about Michael Jordan's personal life um, and, and his return and sort of his relationship with his teammates and, and the, the person, and I guess like the price that came with winning. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. Cause that's probably the highlight of this. episode to me is, I mean, I, I actually really liked it because I think there were parts where Michael Jordan came off as a jerk, but it was sort of explaining why was that? And, and so I thought that was actually really insightful and really interesting. And, and that's a side of Michael Jordan's game that you can't just find on YouTube, right? That's the, that, like, you could go watch a 10-minute highlight tape of Michael Jordan's best dunks, so you don't need the documentary to do that. You do need a documentary to tell you what was going on behind the scenes. And so I actually like these two episodes because they did that, even if there wasn't as much goat player discussion. Yeah, um, because I, I do think that part of the appeal for me, as someone who never watched Jordan, is seeing hey, this is why this guy's the GOAT, watch it. And that's obviously really captivating. Um, and I, I acknowledge that there, that the document, that the documentary is supposed to be behind the scenes and they're, they're covering uh, Jordan's dad and that, that's all good. Um, and that's, that's what I want to see out of a documentary. I just, I don't know, I guess they, it, it's hard to dive deep on something like that because you have MJ Green to do this thing and like, not gonna like do anything he doesn't want you know um but i i don't know i i felt like i wish it gotten into a bit more either detail or depth i wish they had a little bit more of when when they went down the theories and and it's like hey what do you think happened and and the guy was like that that's bs or something like that like i wish they had more opinions i wish they had just more insights and more like hard takes of people who were there at the time and who were journalists at the time because I do think it was interesting that they're like, it wasn't journalism's finest hour. Um. Yeah, I, I, I kind of disagree with that point, though, because I think that 
the best players to tell the situation weren't the journalists who were there because the journalists at the end of the day weren't in the locker room. They can't explain what Michael Jordan was going through when he lost his father or when he came back or when he was trying to show players what it took to win. The only players you can do that were, I forget what his name was, um, like Scott Brudel or something like that. Like the guy that Michael Jordan was actually like kind of bullying to get him to be the player that he wanted him to be. Um, And so only the players under that expectations or actually living in the same space as Michael Jordan, the players who actually feared him were the ones who could speak to that. And, And so I think that it made sense to me in this episode to cut out some of the parts where you have Sam Smith, for example, who has been featured very heavily, like in the last couple of episodes, to not be as heavily featured in these couple of episodes. Ahmad Rashad was still featured pretty heavily, but I think that was because he was a very close friend of Michael Jordan. That, and there was a part where he explained he actually had to put on Michael Jordan's tie the day of his father's funeral. Like Ahmad Rashad was there. And, and so I understand what you're saying is like, there wasn't as much outside talk. It relied very heavily on BJ Armstrong, Bill Wennington, um, Michael Jordan himself, Gary Payton, uh, all the different players, more than the media members, more than coaches. Uh, But I actually think it served the purposes of these episodes well, even though it was unorthodox compared to the other six episodes so far. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One thing that struck me was the Michael Jordan baseball thing, because they do explain their retirement very well in that in the previous episode, episode six, about how, about how Jordan was super exhausted and he just wanted to take a break and how the media kind of drove him to do that. And the first thing that stood out to me was just how the world was just at a standstill when it when it broke at, at a game that Jordan might be retiring. Just like, it's, it's one of those, where were you when you heard this moments? The LeBron only- James tweeted about that. He said, nine yeah. years old, I was crying on Twitter. And that sort of like set the, the Twitterverse on fire. It's like, okay, yeah, it was that moment. Even if you didn't yeah. live through it, people who did remember it. Yeah, like on, the only thing for me that I can remember in NBA history, it just in, in my five years of being a hardcore NBA fan, is two things. One, when Katie joined the Warriors, where were you? Because I, I remember I, I was at my grandparents' house on my couch. I remember that. I was at a I was at sleepaway camp and and um, like one of my counselors told me and you, we didn't have our phones or anything so I had to find out anyway, I wasn't watching Sports Center or anything so I had to be told by one of my camp counselors. What was your reaction? I was furious. I, I was really not happy because I was not. I mean, if you've been if you've been watching our our channel or following our podcast for a while, you know that like generally Connor Gillen is the one who likes to hype up the Warriors, he's a Steph Curry fan. And I wouldn't say I'm a total hater or that I'm anti-Warriors, but I lean in the other direction. Um, and so I was not happy about that. Um, and, and I also, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm one of those people who's like, Kevin Durant's a snake. And like, I don't forgive him. I understand the decision. I just didn't like it. Um, I didn't think it was good for the NBA. But yeah, that's a sidetrack yeah. there. Yeah, sidetrack. I remember I, I fell to my knees. I was like, what? And then <laughs> and then the other one was when Kobe died. Like, you know. That was so recently, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those are going to be the two. 
Um, but yeah, so just seeing how the media room was packed, like I couldn't count the, the, the number of cameras, right? Mm. Um, and so, and so uh, that was like, oh my God. Yeah, like imagine if LeBron just retired like his second year in Cleveland. No, Im- imagine if LeBron retired after he came back 3-1. That's what it would be like which is absurd. Like, I or, can't even yeah. that, right? Like, if you won back-to-back championships with the Heat, and then instead of announcing yeah. he's going back to the Cavs, he just, he just retired from the NBA. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing that was interesting, this is a tangent, but one of the media people, when he was retiring, said, Jordan, the greatest, the greatest basketball player we've ever seen, is about to retire. And I'm like, man, that's before after his first Mets. three. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a man. Like better he, than Bird, safe. better than Magic, better than Kareem. Yeah, it's like man, like yeah, like, he's he's there without a second three feet. Like maybe a, maybe a little bit biased because I'm pretty sure that yeah. was Jerry Reinsdorf who said that, who is the owner of the Bulls. I, I think it was him. I could be wrong about that. Somebody has to fact check me. Um, but whoever it was, I don't think it was like a random media member. I think it was somebody within the Bulls organization and a personal friend of MJ's. So. But but yeah. a statement nonetheless. Yeah, definitely. And so just talking about and it was like, it was oh. greatest athlete to ever play a team sport, not just basketball, too. Really? Yeah. Damn. Um, so speaking about athletes, Jordan did not translate that well to baseball. Although one thing I did not know is that he started on a 13 game hitting streak. Yeah, and, which was and brand even, new information. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know that either, but, but even like your, he didn't transition all that well to baseball, I think is up for some debate because I think he transitioned to baseball about as well as he could considering they set up, he basically hadn't played baseball since he was in high school and now he was 31 years old. It had been like, yeah, like 15 like, years since he played baseball and all of a sudden he's competing at a double A level, which doesn't sound like all that much to the normal person, but I can say having spent a couple of weeks this summer working at a triple-A baseball team, minor league baseball is very competitive, very high level. Like the people who are playing double-A baseball are still the best players from the NCAA. Most college baseball players, the best players from around the world, never touch minor league baseball, never get to double-A. Um, so that's a big deal. Because in the MLB especially, when you get drafted as a rookie – Practically zero of zero rookies go straight from the draft to the majors like they do in the NBA. Like 99.9% of rookies, this is as not a super intense MLB fan or anything, but knowing a little bit about how the system works, you go to the minors instead, whether it be triple A or single A, you go through the system and eventually make it to the majors. That's just how you do it. Um, it's more lucrative than the than the G League is in that sense. Yeah, so he he hit 202. So every fifth at bat he got a hit, which is ridiculous considering like hitting hitting a baseball is the hardest thing in sports probably. And him doing that after just not doing it for years is ridiculous. So I was impressed by that. I was impl- I was impressed by the 13 game hitting streak and there, I feel like there was a quote from the from the owner. He was like, he would he would have gotten to the big leagues if if he had stuck with it. I don't know if I would have gone that far. I just thought that that deserved mentioning, but I I, I disagree with that. The 
disagree with her or not, the, I, I think what was interesting about that was that Jari Reiserf wasn't the only person who said it. So the difference between that and Jerry Reiserf calling him the greatest athlete to ever play a team sport after his first three championships was that there were other people even just within this documentary that said if Michael Jordan had had X more at-bats in the minors, he would have eventually found his way to the majors. Um, it was like two or three people who said that which sort of solidified it a little bit to me or gave it some more credibility. But even so, it might be a little bit trash. I'm inclined to believe it because it seemed like every challenge that was thrown at Michael Jordan, he managed to adapt to, right? So the, it was he had that 13-game win streak. Then, play, then the pitchers figured out he couldn't hit a breaking ball. And so then he would spend, he would hit before games, after games, days off, everything, just breaking balls on the breaking ball machine until he could hit those two. Right. And then all of a sudden, that's how he hit 202, had 50 RBIs, and, and was all of a sudden a very respectable hitter. So I think give him more at-bats, and the more time he had to build his body for baseball, the more challenges that were thrown his way, I think he would have overcome them. Now, he probably would have lasted very long in the majors because he was already 31 years old when he entered the minors. It's pretty, it's pretty old to be a rookie in, in, in a new sport to be at 31 years old, but yeah, I, by the time you give him two years, he could have made triple a and then a couple more years in the majors. I don't think it's out of the question. Yeah. Another thing about baseball is there, there was a quote he had. He was like, I was, I was having so much fun because they just treated me like one of the guys. Mm. And I was like, Oh, so that's, that's tying into the last week's episode about him just being swarmed everywhere he went and he didn't want to be famous and he didn't want to be a role model. It's like, oh, here, he's just a normal dude and people aren't, like, he, he doesn't walk into uh, uh, the locker room and, and he's being swarmed by, by 30 reporters. And, the, the, he, and he's playing in front of however many thousand instead of, like, like tens of thousands, you know? Mm. So... To me, it kind of goes back to the part where he said, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have been a role model. Um, it, it sort of, it, it raises a question for me, which is like, did Jordan really want to be the sort of, the, the one who had the responsibility to push his teammates to be great and to be the one that had to show people how to win? Or was that just one of the things that came with being the guy that was known as the greatest basketball player ever um, only a handful of years into his career. Um, because part of, I, I think part of what you're saying is right. It's okay. He doesn't have the same media attention. He's just one of the guys when he's in that locker room, but to some extent that might be true in the NBA too. He could be just another NBA player, but I kind of think that what sets, what's, what's the difference is that in double a baseball, if anything, he was the one that was out of place. He wasn't the one that was like most fitting and most deserving to be there and most solidified. Um, and so instead of being the one that had to show others how it's done and how to win and how to be great, he had to start over again. And, and he was at ground zero and had to work his way up. So instead of having the responsibility to lead, um, he he wasn't the man in the locker room anymore. He was literally just one of the guys. And so when you talk about, there was there was a at some point they talked about like that even the people on his team feared him 
because he was that awe-inspiring, whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe he didn't want to be feared. Maybe that was a side, an unfortunate side effect. And when he played baseball, no one had to fear him. Is I guess that's a little bit of like a, a stretch, but I kind, that's kind of the way I saw it. Is It was more than just the media attention. It was literally he was no longer Michael Jordan when he was playing baseball. He had a fresh start. There is something to be said for no one wants the video game when they're done and they've completed all the levels. Mm. So you could be like, like people like the grind, right? They like improving. Personally, as a basketball player, I like practice more than games. I think that if, yeah, it, it just goes back to video games. Like if no one wants, no one wants to dominate when you worked your way up and you dominate and you've been dominating for three straight years, you know? So that's, that's my take on he, he had nothing left to prove and he knew that to where he would be making stuff up to try to, to try to motivate himself. But I think he only figured that out a bit later. I feel like he just was like, okay, I, I, I have nothing left to do. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to start fresh and just improve at something else, you know? To sort of use that to segue into a, a different part of the Last Dance episodes, uh, on the point of, I, like, I, I kind of, I kind of think that like Michael Jordan, as much as he is known for his competitive drive, um, and, and his like unmatched character as a competitor, he needed fuel for that fire. That wasn't just something that was always there, and he could turn off on and off whenever he wanted to. He needed things to get him going. Um, and so I think that in baseball, just the fact that he wasn't the greatest was sufficient. But when he got to the top in basketball, maybe it wasn't. But I guess that brings us to the story of B.J. Armstrong and LeBradshaw Smith that they talked about in the documentary when he used those as motivation in the playoffs, right? Um, and, and so for those of you who don't remember, LeBradshaw Smith was – some random Bulls rookie who had one 37-point game against Michael Jordan and the second game of a back-to-back. Was he a Bulls or he was a Bullets? Bullets. That's, I, that's what I meant to say if I, if I didn't say that. Bullets rookie, 37 points in the first game of a back-to-back in Chicago. Jordan goes back to Washington, and I, I forget how many points he scored. Like, went absolutely ballistic. Third, I think he scored 37 in the first half. Yeah, it was like, yeah, 36 and, then, and a half. And, then, and he, he ended with like 55 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just, uh, and he, he made up a story about how at the end of the first game, LeBradshaw Smith put his arm around him and said, nice game, Mike. And then later, Jordan admitted, no, he never actually said that. He just had to make it up in his head because that was the only thing that could get him going enough to have to go back and beat LeBradshaw Smith. That's he had so to make sick. up he had to make up that LeBradshaw Smith trash talked him to to be able to go back and drop 55 on him. He was a little bit crazy. There was something a little like he was a little bit off his rocker to be like <laughs> I, I need to get myself ramped up and competitive and going and then all of a sudden I'm going to be some unstoppable juggernaut. And I saw somebody post I think it was like the bra report on Instagram. It's a funny post. It was like it was from Twitter. It was like, if Michael Jordan ever went to therapy, he would have averaged four points per game. 
<laughs> if he had any kind of like stress, anger management, he wouldn't have been able to do everything he did, which I don't know if that's true, but he used whatever fire he could to get himself going and to make him and to keep pushing himself to be better. Yeah. There's, there's been a theme throughout the documentary of people disrespecting Michael Jordan. And then it cuts to Michael Jordan. It's like, they shouldn't have done that. And then it cuts yeah. to Michael Jordan dropping 40 on their head. Uh, like, like in the, like George Carl just didn't say hi to him before mm. the NBA finals. And then Jordan's like, okay, like, like I'm about to go off. Like, like you keep disrespecting me. I'm, I'm about to go off. So, and I was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I was like, why, like, why would you do that? <laughs> we'll jump, do we'll that jump George? to that Sonics, that Sonic series in one second. I want, I want to first talk about the Hornet series, which was the year, it was the year after his return. So it was in like the first full season he had back, I think. Um, and they played against, and, and BJ Armstrong was the starting point guard for the Hornets that year. He had just left that summer to go play for the Hornets. And I think it was the Bulls win game one. And then in game two, BJ Armstrong comes out and hits a shot, a game winner basically. And then starts trash talking, yelling, jumping, high-fiving, you know, speaking to the Bulls bench, basically just shut like shoving it in their faces. Um, and that was one of those, you shouldn't have done that moments. I forget who it was. It, I think it was like Glenn Rice maybe or Kendall Gill. Um, one of the Hornets forwards said, it was like, it was like yeah, you, he shouldn't have done that. We knew it was over at that point. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't catch that, but when it was I, like when I, all when I was, was going to break loose and it did uh when when i was watching that i was like like bj armstrong would make a jump shot I'd be like yeah bj let's go let's go <laughs> and i don't know why i was rooting so hard for bj armstrong it was so great and this, he was knocked down the was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> it, was, it was so fun um i don't he he is i don't know he reminds me of, of like isaiah thomas old old isaiah thomas because they're both like have these really genuine warm faces and like like warm voice i, I like I, like i want you to succeed like he know, smiles man. throughout the whole interview he does he even does. when he's like, he's like yeah i was scared of michael jordan he'll be he'll be smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there was that like i couldn't i couldn't stop focusing on bj armstrong it's too cute <laughs> agreed <laughs> um all right, but let's let's jump over to that that Sonic series that you briefly mentioned uh, with with George Carl, and that was the thing that he used for motivation. There um, was was that George Carl passed him in a restaurant without saying anything, even though they played golf together and, and worked together in the Olympic team. Um, it sort of brushed him off, and, and so that was Michael Jordan's driving force for an entire series, like in the finals, as if a championship wasn't enough. No, he had just show it to George Carl every game for not saying hi to him. Yeah, I would also say that's a pretty freaking late adjustment to be like, okay, we're done 3-0. Now we're going to put our defensive player of the year on Michael Jordan. I was going to say, I, <laughs> I said to my dad, I was like, that might be the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know what? We watch you. You, yeah, you won Defensive Player of the Year. Your nickname's The Glove. The only, the only guard to win it ever <laughs> since Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah, other than Michael Jordan, the only Defensive Player of the Year from a guard spot. No, 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 no. Uh, we, we, we want you to save it for offense. You're going to get tired if you do both. We're just going to give you off on defense. Uh, it's, it makes no sense. It, the logic there just doesn't, like, 
every second that Gary Payton was on the floor, he should be on Michael Jordan. Figure out the scoring later. The first thing you have to do when playing the Bulls is stop Michael Jordan. So put the like like the best perimeter defender at like at the guard spot, other than maybe Michael Jordan himself, on Michael Jordan. It seems pretty simple. Um, so yes, first of all, yes, that was a stupid decision on George Carl's part. Um, but. Uh, what I also, uh, maybe the most important thing to get to from the series was that Michael Jordan, when showed that clip um, of Gary Payton saying, like, I was nudging Jordan, I was pushing him, and I was wearing him down, and I was, you know, and I was like, this and that. And Jordan just, like, is, like, laughing. He's like, he's like I had no problem with the glove. No problem. Like, Did you not catch whoa. that? Whoa, okay. One of us, I guess it's me, one of us is entire is entirely misconstruing the the thing when when he said i have no problem with the glove yeah i thought he's saying i have no problem with glove like like me and gary payton are cool no 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 he was saying because he said i have no problem with the glove i had other things on my mind that series and then it proceeded to show the father's day thing so he was saying no like he they showed him that clip of 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 the glove saying like or of gary payton saying like I was getting in Michael Jordan's yeah. face, I was getting in his head, I was pushing him, I was tiring him out, I was wearing him down. He's like, he laughs at him, like laughs, like laughs at that clip and says, "I had no problem with him. I just had other things in my mind that series." Oh yeah. I, okay. I in my head I was like, I call BS. You had like like sure it was okay. The game the it was, I forget which game it was, but one of the games I, it was the it was the final game of the series was on. Father's Day. So he won the championship on Father's Day, and that was his first championship since his father died. So I understandable that on the first Father's Day without your father, you're going to be emotional. He's used to every, every game he plays, especially in the finals, his father being right there by his side to celebrate. And so there's something, there's some emptiness around the potential of winning a championship and not having his father there to celebrate with him. Because if you look back at pictures from his first three championships, the person that's sitting right there, you know, arm around his shoulder while he's, you know, while he's crying over the Larry O'Brien trophy, isn't Scottie Pippen, isn't Dennis Rodman, isn't Horace Grant, it's James Jordan. Um, it, so understandable. You can be emotional about that. But you're telling me that the fact that, that in the game you won – the one, the game that you won to win the series, not the game they were talking about, the game before when it, game four was the first game that they put Gary Payton on him, and that was the game that the Bulls lost. That was the game before Father's Day, so that wasn't even the same game. That wasn't even the same game that was on Father's Day, but there was something else on your mind. I don't buy it. I think <laughs> game three, sure, they didn't have Gary Payton on him. Michael Jordan did his thing for one game. The Gary Payton was on Michael Jordan's butt. I think there were two games. Yeah, well, so, but for, for game four, losses. Mike, yeah. game four, Gary Payton. Oh, sorry, you're right. There was two. They, they, lost, they lost game four and game five because Gary Payton was on Michael Jordan. For and then they won game six on Father's Day to win the championship. So for yeah. two games, Gary Payton, I think, was on Michael Jordan, giving him hell. And then right. maybe game six, there was something on Jordan's mind. But I, I don't believe that. He just played an entire playoffs totally fine as if nothing happened. And all of a sudden game four and five hit and all of a sudden he's devastated about his father again, understandable, but it's not going to be different than the play the rest of the playoffs were, except for maybe 
on Father's Day, but that was the game he won. So I don't buy the logic. Uh, the, uh, they, they, they made a little bit of a leap in showing that, but I don't buy that logic. I, 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 I think Gary Payton just shut down Jordan for two games. Not shut him down, but slowed him down. Yeah, I, I had this whole other thing planned. I was like, yeah, man, like Jordan and Gary are cool. Like, because like, <laughs> Gary earned his respect because he's like super hard-nosed. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I guess I'm wrong on that one. Uh, something else I wanted to talk to you about is yeah. the the way that they finally got to that fourth championship is Jordan's return. And so mm-hmm. Jordan comes back before the playoffs and they lose to the Magic and then the next year they win. However, that return was super legendary. Um, of course. But, but the thing, like his fifth game, he drops 55. But the thing that... Um, I was watching afterwards. Shoot, I'm going to forget who it was. It was this woman who was on with Scott Van Pelt. I totally know the name, but I'm forgetting. But she was like, people, it, like, it's all about the details. Like, you're talking about Michael Jordan, who forever was, like, super neat, super, super swaggy, but, like, neat, laces tied tight and upright. He put on his shorts backwards in his first in his first game like when he's usually like the most locked in guy like Mm. like that that can that's just that's a little evidence of like his emotional like and his mental state you know like like he's thinking about other stuff right so i just wanted to mention that as something that stood out to me that he yeah he wore his shorts backwards in a game like you see you see rookies not bringing their jerseys out to games in the nba right now yeah you and then Michael Jordan, a vet, put put his shorts on backwards, and it was noticeable. Um, so there was that, and then also the series with the Magic, which I really liked, because as Horace as, Grant's revenge. Yeah, Horace Grant's revenge. Horace Grant is very wholesome. I like him. I like him too. Um, he has he has the NBA Care shirt on. I'm like, oh, good for mm. you. Um, and so the Bulls lost, but. It was great because they had a they had a whole Michael Jordan isn't isn't God segment in the documentary where where breaking Michael pockets. Jordan is human. That was my favorite line of the whole oh, series. That was sick. It, it was a, he like looks down at his book. He's like breaking Michael Jordan is human. <laughs> that, was that was awesome. Yeah, that was sick. Um, because it was true. Like the Magic like outplayed the Bulls. Jordan. I don't know if he choked, but like he he had a very costly turnover at the end of the game. Yeah, and yeah, chokes so, the right word. Yeah, I think that is very not- not- noticeable, and I feel like people don't talk about that as much. And I feel like if they do, it's because there's like, oh, he was rusty, which is true. But he, I, I don't know yeah. if you give him a pass, you know. Uh, you give him a pass in that I, he was rusty. And the, the short thing that you just mentioned is evidence that he was rusty sort of that, that year. Um, and and I, I buy the thing that, okay, he had to get his bat. He had to get his body back in basketball shape. And he did that over that summer with the space jam and the Jordan dome. Uh, and so I think they explained that well, what doesn't connect. And we talked about this in the last episode is that you can't talk about Michael Jordan as like the greatest strongest mind ever as being some like having unlike unmatched mental fortitude and then say 
given the excuse of, okay, he was rusty and there were other things on his mind. Is in, you have to pick one or the other. So either there weren't other things on his mind and Gary Payton locked him up and he choked um, and he's just not mentally the player that he is sometimes hyped up to be by people who are, Jordan's the GOAT and there's no question about it. Jordan is so um, so much in a tier of his own. There's no even comparing. Um, there's just there's just a balance, and and both can't be true. Is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying there. You know, I, I I do. Speaking of mental weaknesses, mm. I was I had heard about the whole Pippin quitting thing. Yeah, I I had never seen it, and I I never laid out this like. I never knew the circumstance. I was, I always was like, oh yeah, P- Pippen didn't get the last shot and he was upset about that. But like, it was so foggy. I, I had no idea. I was like, I was like, was Jordan on the team? Like, like what was going on? Yeah. That I thought, I thought that was the best part of the series or no, that was, that was one of the best series they've had in, in, in the most recent episodes because they laid it out perfectly. They laid out the, they laid out the team without Jordan. They laid out how they did well. They laid out how they got to where they got, like the Eastern Conference, like semifinals or finals or something. Mm-hmm. And then, then you had this dilemma. It was it was like a a rise and fall of the not Jordan Bulls, which no one really ever talks about. Um, and so seeing Scotty, when 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 coach when when Phil Jackson's like, hey Tony Kukoc, you're taking the last shot. Scotty's not. And just dude, I cannot imagine that happening today. Like imagine if, imagine if uh, Kawhi is is on load management or Kawhi gets injured in in a in a second round playoff game against the Rockets or, or the Jazz or something, or no no that, that was the Knicks were the best team that year. So imagine they're they're playing the Lakers, and Paul George is in the game, and then it's like oh hey we're we're gonna uh, get it to Lou Will and Paul George doesn't go in the game because he's so mad. Like that's that's like uh, that's a parallel, bro. Like I like the NBA would never forgive him. They yeah, never forgive him. Um, the the and- the the point that I think they made and they and they explained well is, I agree. Is it's like it's almost like well, why don't we talk about that more? Why isn't that more of a stain on Scottie Pippen's career? Why is he still a top thirty player in history in people's eyes, if not higher? If when it was when he was the star of his own team, this opportunity that somebody could argue that he deserved and uses like the Scottie Pippen was great because if he had his own team, well, then the one time he had his own team, he gave up on them, whatever. Everybody agreed that they interviewed. That wasn't Scottie Pippen's character, right? They, they, yeah. The BJ Armstrong, we, we keep talking about him. I thought that BJ Armstrong killed it in, in these couple of episodes. Yeah. Just like his interviews, all of it. I, Love him, fan of B.J. Armstrong now, but that, but he was like, it was just so not Scottie Pippen. And Steve Kerr said something similar. Um, and, but and then Bill Cartwright came in and gave the speech crying, and, and that says something too because I don't think you give a speech crying about that if you're not shocked and disappointed, like. If it was just characteristic of Scottie Pippen, if that was just something that was like, okay, whatever, it's annoying, but we won the game, they would have just brushed it off and celebrated and just ignored, like, acted like it didn't happen. But that was something that was 
unexpected, hurtful, because Scottie Pippen was supposed to be the most solid personality on the team, I think. Yeah, when when they were heading back into the locker room, well, first of all, Tony Kukoc hitting that shot was hilarious. I, I was like, I was like, oh, he's gonna miss, and that's gonna be the problem. It's like, oh no, no. he made it. Um, Shout so, out to Phil Jackson for that call, by the way, because that, imagine if he missed it. Yeah, that Phil be- Jackson's got balls for that because <laughs> to to say like, no, we're gonna give the we're gonna give the ball to. I think Tony Kukoc was a rookie. I'm like ninety percent sure that that was his rookie year. Um, yeah, was. Say, we're going to give Ricky Tony Kukoc the last shot over Scottie Pippen. Over a perennial all-star, yeah. Scottie Pippen. Um, now, it but, was the right call because it went in, but yeah. ballsy. Um, so, so they were walking back into the locker room, and they cut to, I think it was uh, Bill Wellington or, I don't know, the, mm. the center. And, and I thought, and he started to be like, we were all, we were all looking around, like, and I thought he was going to be like, oh, like, like, wow, like, we're mad at Scotty for quitting and we were like, haha, told you so. Or something like, 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 like Bill Jack, Bill was right. Like, come on, man. But it was just, it was less a sense of, I told you so. Or, or I was also like, Oh, is it going to be awkward? Because oh, like now Scotty's embarrassed. Cause like he was like, he was wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, like Phil proven wrong, but it was neither of those things. It had both, like both, both of those things were true. But the main thing was, was just a sense of disillusionment from from a locker room to where Scotty's like a leader, Scotty's your best player. Scotty's been here through all the successes. And he just having someone quit on a team that has been together for so long, has done such great things together. And that team, I can tell you right now, that team that team is was close. Just I don't know, just from being a hooper or whatever. But that team was close in that if if you guys aren't like brothers if you guys aren't blood brothers on the court people don't cry for other people's actions on on a court you guys have to be a locker room full of guys that like you would die for that guy you know Mm. and you would cry because that guy didn't want to die for you you know so that that like hit deep i was like like scar in in the wound i was like damn bro that that had me in my feels like I, i felt like i could be one of the guys in the locker room um, nice uh nice english class buzzword with disillusionment <laughs> but uh, i i was gonna say uh, the thing that stood out to me probably the most from that because i was kind of familiar with the story um was that scotty pippen said at the end that if he had the chance to do it all over again he wouldn't change anything and i guess what was most surprising to me about that is he didn't explain why perfectly understandable answer if it's like i wouldn't change anything because it made our team closer or because we all learned something that day. It wasn't, but it wasn't like a but or because it was just, I wouldn't change anything. So I was like, okay, like why? Because at face value, that is a, that is a stain and asterisk something like on a little like side note on, on Scotty Pippen's career that he'll never be able to erase. Um, so the fact that he didn't want to for no apparent reason, um, when it seems like the obvious choice was surprising to me. So I, I, I'd be curious to see why you said that, but I don't know. Yeah. And the last sort of big topic I want to cover is a lot of episode eight focused on, hey, Jordan is kind of a jerk and you better mm-hmm. like it or you better not like it and leave, you know? 
what were your, what were your thoughts on that? Was that according to your initial perceptions? Was that contrary? Did that stand out to you? Um, like I sort of mentioned at the beginning, this was my this was my favorite part of these two episodes. It was where I, I felt like this was the most revealing part of Michael Jordan's character, um, because I, not everybody's perfect, for one obvious thing, um, but I think it's it's the biggest sort of like statement about the game or the statement about life that this documentary could make which was that quote and i said i mentioned you before the episode that it was the most right downable quote of the of the uh whole series so far was he said uh like winning always comes with a price and i guess that uh, that sort of stuck with me because it's like that could, I mean, you, you could interpret that a lot of different ways. My dad and I interpreted it two ways, two different ways, and we've been watching it together. And, and so the way I took it was that it was like he had to sacrifice his image or his good guy status with the team in order to win, in order to be great. There were things that he had to sacrifice for himself or he like like he had to give things up in order to win. Um, he didn't just mean, okay, you need to make moves. You need to make basketball decisions as in you need to like let go of Horace Grant to win more championships or, and like pick up Dennis Rodman and get rid of Charles Oakley to win more championships. In a LeBron-esque. Yeah, or like in, in case of the Warriors, like the Warriors' price of winning, you could say it was they had to trade Monte Ellis and keep Steph Curry, or they had to, you know, trade Andrew Bogut, or whatever it is. Like, but I, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's like basketball position wise. I don't, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant he had to give up his status as a good guy or being perceived as a nice guy by his teammates um, in order to win. And so when I talked about earlier about just feeling like one of the guys on the basketball team, I th- on the baseball team, um, when he played double A, I think that maybe that's what he gave up in winning six championships was being the nice guy again, or just being able to be a teammate. He, he no longer had to give things up to win because he wasn't competing for an NBA championship on such a massive scale under so much attention um and so he no longer had to make those sacrifices and give up that image of himself and and just be the nice guy and just be loving and friendly he didn't have to instill fear in his teammates to make them better um i do think that he was still he wasn't like a a rosy guy before in the first three like we, we saw that he was pushing his teammates he he was saying like, Hey, if, if you let Dennis, if you let Dennis slack at all, like, like get into him a lot, like it, it, it was still a, I don't want to say eat or be eaten, but I think it, it still was kind of a, a jungle culture, you know, where, but, but where even then has, he was winning. Yeah. I, my point I, I'm is just saying, I, 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 I'm just drawing the distinction. I don't think it was a, a first three Pete. He's nice. Then he gets no. back and he has to be predatory. No. Know? I think it was a little bit extra because he had to take them from a team. They met, they talked about how Steve Kerr and Luke Longley had showed up without having won the first three championships and felt like they were part of the Bulls organization and part of the whole thing, even though they hadn't really been there for it. They had, they, 
they can they held themselves a certain status and consider themselves you know part of the crew even though they weren't there for the first three championships and so he had to be a little bit extra harsh and he had to do the thing where he confronted Steve Kerr and then eventually punched him in the face. Like that was maybe the most clear example of him giving up nice guy status was to like set that team straight. But no, that, that, but, but as you're that, saying, that, that was that's true. Not like a, that's not, that's not a conscious decision. He's like, he's like, you know what? I'm going to give up my nice guy status because when I punch Steve Kerr, everything's going to be better. Like that, that's still in, that's still part of no, his personality. But, like, like he lost it, you know? But, well, but 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 he wouldn't have been going at Steve Kerr the way he was in the first place if he didn't feel that way. Is in because because the the, the 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 context for that was he said Phil Jackson was calling tic tac fouls, and he thought when they played the Knicks or when they played the other physical teams in the NBA, calling those tic tac foul those tic tac fouls weren't going to be called, and so Steve Kerr wasn't or sorry Phil Jackson wasn't helping Steve Kerr. And so he was getting pissed because he wants to make Steve Kerr better and go at him and push him and play hard. And Phil Jackson's making it harder for him to do that. And, and so the, while maybe that, that, that moment he regretted and maybe that wasn't part of the giving up his nice guy thing as part of like the motivation to win, it came from, or it was rooted in that, that. Um, but the reason Phil Jackson started, but the reason Phil Jackson started calling Tic Tac fouls was because Jordan walked into that gym looking for a fight. They, they said well, he said, like, like, he, like said he, he wanted started, him to ease started. up on them. Phil Jackson said that he wanted Jordan yeah. to take to ease up on his teammates or take it, you know, take it down on a level. Um, and, and I don't think – I'm not sure Phil Jackson was right to do that because Phil Jackson wasn't perfect either. And he held – and he ran his teams with, like, the Zen master approach, which was, like, meditation and, and like, Native American – in, in Eastern Asian practices that were, I, I guess those cultures are very much focused on, on peace, uh, peace with, with oneself and with the people around you. And so um, it, it didn't exactly line up, I guess, with Phil, Phil Jackson's ideology. Um, and so maybe it's a little bit clashing back and forth. And so Phil Jackson was trying to make it go easy on him, but Michael Jordan had a very different approach. Yeah. And so, the last thing I want to talk about is the, is the cliffhanger mm. because I know th this left you, this left you pretty hype about it. Yeah. Oh, it, this just makes me want to watch the next, the next two episodes really badly. Yeah. It's a good cliffhanger. Yeah. And so it, it's Reggie Miller saying, and so we are ready for them in the conference finals when they're going for their, what is it? Sixth ring or was it fifth? It was six. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was the year they were 72. They won 72 games. So it was not the sixth one. It was not the 97, 98 one. It was either their was the fifth fourth or fifth. I, I think it might have been. It was their fifth because they'd already, they won the fourth against the Supersonics. Yeah, but the, the Pacers are in the Eastern Conference. So it could have been the same year. Yeah. They, they, played the, they played the Sonics in the finals. The Sonics are a Western Conference team. They played yeah, the Pacers they, in the Eastern Conference finals. So I'm saying it could have been the same year. I, I think they played the Magic that year. I'm not, I'm not positive. But either way, mm, either could way, be. the cliffhanger is Reggie Miller saying, we, we were the better team, you know? And to, for him to stick by his guns against a 72-10 and 10 team that won a ring, who, which most people call the best team of all time, if you're not a Warriors fan, that 
it, and Reggie Miller seems like a cool dude. He seems like a normal, cool dude. He's in the media. He's not even like one of those ex players that's like insanely biased and just says whatever. Like, like he he's watching modern basketball, and for him to stick by his guns and say that, that just set off a little bit of like a. What are you, what are you talking about, Reginald? Reginald. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I, the fact that he was like, that was a stacked team, by the way. Like, to his credit, that was, it was him, Chris Mullen, Rick Smiths. Um, that was a, that was a very, very solid team. But to say that they were, to say that to this day, he believes they were the better team for that series was questionable. I don't know. So it's not even so much that it's like more than anything, because we know they lost. So, I mean, we know they don't win in the end. So I'm like, how can you, how can they have won 72 games, the championship and beat you in that series? And you still think you were the better team. That's, that sounds like another moment where I'm going to be like, I call BS very much like the Gary Payton thing. Sometimes you just got to hold DL. Sometimes you do have to hold the L, especially if you played in the nine in the nineties where Michael Jordan reigns supreme, supreme, and he was exactly out a lot of L's. All right, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Space Floor NBA Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. If you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe. We really appreciate it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which we're now on, uh, leave a review and. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Space the Floor Podcast and on Twitter at Space the Floor. And thank you so much for watching. My name is Connor Nealon. And I'm Connor Flannery. And see you next time. Peace. Shout out to Reginald Miller. <laughs> and BJ Armstrong. <laughs>